Hey guys. What's up, G? Wanna go to Chachki's? Get some coffee? Oh, it's a little early. I, mean... I gotta get out of here. I think I'm gonna lose it. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. How about I have a case of the why is there a five-day work week and can we get another weekend day? And maybe we can make that Monday so nobody has the case of the Mondays anymore. The point is, shut up. Okay, thanks. And welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, as always, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we're going to be taking a little work trip, <laughs> a little work trip, and we're going to be discussing Office Space, the 1999 classic and I'm calling it a classic because I really think it is a well-done comedy movie, a farce on office life. And and to be honest, like that kind of office life doesn't doesn't exist anymore in some ways. Um so it's really a product of its time and a lot of the stuff that is discussed in the movie and portrayed in the movie uh, is very 1999. And one of the uh, central uh, ideas surrounding office space is the second half of the movie is where they're trying to um, get the, you know, the fractions of the sense to accumulate over time. And it turns out they end up extracting $300,000 in a day or something. Something like something wild like that. But the premise for doing that is because the company that they work for is so invested in changing dates for the year 2000, which was a, a, an important thing to do. So instead of using two year dates, change everything to four year dates. And the way those dates are calculated in um, processing was really important in 1999. Anyway, people were working uh, up until that. But of course, 1999 was the time that companies basically, you know, com software engineers had to, uh, to figure out how they were going to handle a new century uh, because computers didn't really exist at 1900. So there you go. Computers were in our brains. That's the kind of insight you get at this amazing podcast. Yes. So the film was written and directed by Mike Judge, who you might be familiar with. He did shows like Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill. Um, those are the two co uh, co cartoon comedies that he is most known for. And the film stars Ron Livingston. First of all, what happened to Ron Livingston? He's really good, and you don't see him in much anymore. He was kind of a flash-in-the-pan kind of 
kind of actor there. I haven't really seen him in much or heard him in much. Opposite, playing opposite him is Jennifer Aniston, somebody who <laughs> has not disappeared. She starred in this movie as, uh, you know, Friends was skyrocketing, was, was sort of right in the middle of Friends that this came out. So, you know, she was a big draw for crowds who were like, oh, Jennifer Aniston's in a movie. Let's go see what she has. Let's go see if she's playing. She plays a different character from Rachel, which we all know and love her um, as. And yes, love her. You can fight me on that one. And then there are a few other people um, that really haven't been seen much uh, of after this. David Herman plays Michael Bolton. No, not that Michael Bolton. Um, the uh, you, no, no relation, just a coincidence. Kind of hates the music of the other Michael Bolton, which is great. Uh, AJ Naidu plays Samir. Um, he's been in a few things since you know office space blew up mainly at right after but you know he's still he's still been working he's still been working Diedrich Bader of course been great character actor <laughs> love his character as the neighbor ro- uh, neighbor Lawrence Stephen Root plays Milton my, my stapler I'm going to burn this place down that uh I I used to do Milton with my friends so often so often I I it's it's been it's been great reliving that because my friends and I just did that over and over and over again. Uh, Gary Cole plays the meme you're probably familiar with. The I'm gonna need the he's that boss. Gary Cole, Bill Lumberg. Oh, so good. You know, I think the first time. Now, this is probably gonna be quite strange but i think the first time obviously did not see office space when it came out in 1999 um if you uh, it's obvious to me as to why but listener you may not know um i'm not that i'm not that old uh i'm gonna be 36 uh, in a couple of weeks at the time of this recording about the time that this episode uh is published and so in 1999 i was not allowed to see movies uh of this nature especially with the F-bombs and the Jennifer Aniston flipping off her manager at the end. And a couple of customers, you know. That's the kind of stuff that I was not allowed to watch. So, I didn't see Gary Cole in this particular movie as my first representation of Gary Cole. No, my, my first representation, my first uh, film with Gary Cole in it was he was playing... Uh, um, Dad Brady. Well, I can't even think of that. Mike. Mike Brady. There we go. He uh, he played he played Mike Brady in the sort of um, spoofy parody Brady Bunch movie with a whole new cast that was made to look exactly like the original cast. So that's the first time I saw Gary Cole. And I thought he was hilarious. And I see him in this movie, Office Space, and it's just like, oh, my God. This guy is so good. And, of course, if you've seen him in a bunch of other stuff, um, he's got a lot of range. And a couple of other people that I love, uh, Richard Riley, I love him in everything. He's a fantastic character actor, but his Tom um, Smikowski, uh, or Smikowski, excuse me, uh, <clears throat> character is so good. And then John C. McGinley as Bob Slidell, uh, a few years uh, away from Scrubs. 
but still doing still doing some character actor work and he's got some great facial expressions in this movie of, of course none that you'll be able to see so and before we jump into the guest i i i, I do want to hear from you dear listener on how this movie if you've seen it how it sort of uh how you think about it now versus how you thought about it then, or maybe, you know, you saw it 10 years ago or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's iconic. I hate using that word for movies, but it, it it's one of those iconic ones. And it dropped in the year of film, the year. 1999 has some of the best works uh, and, and, and it's, it's so good. It's so good. So I want to hear from you about this about this movie it uh, is particularly a fun one for me and the guest we have on today is perfect for talking about an office environment we're gonna go into a um, not often discussed aspect of psychology for this particular episode we're gonna be talking about industrial organizational psychology sort of the uh, the business in industry side of of psychology like how do people work together in a business environment how do people like do things together uh in in that particular environment so that's going to be fun a couple of tidbits for you a couple of tidbits for you before we jump into the main main segment of the show uh our our guest shared some uh interesting tidbits um that are quite Quite, uh, quite fun. So the tchotchkes, which isn't even spelled correctly, um, I guess because they wanted their customers to be able to pronounce it. But the tchotchkes restaurant that Joanna Jennifer Aniston works at um, was modeled after TGI Fridays. And if you've ever been to TGI Fridays, at least before you know the year two thousand, um, they used to have flair. They used to be all about this flair thing, which is what tchotchkes makes fun of. The fact that they're wearing tchotchkes, right? Uh, shortly after this movie and people started making fun of them, they were done. No more. They changed their image. There was no more of the tchotchkes or the flair that they had on their um, on their things. It was great. The other sort of MacGuffin-y kind of object in the movie is the swing line stapler, Milton stapler. Um, the red, I, I like this swing line because it, um, it, it, it doesn't jam and it... Uh, um, allows me to um, put my collation together and I was I was told that I would um, I was allowed to watch uh, listen to the radio at a reasonable volume and um, yes my stapler it's a swing line I like I don't like the other one I, I didn't like the other one that's my Milton oh my god I love doing Milton I love doing Milton anyways thank you for indulging me on that one a little went a little too long on that one uh, but anyways the swing line stapler that is used not red originally they painted it red so it would stand out because uh, on black on film kind of just kind of get lost like, gets lost in the the background so they wanted the stapler to pop especially when milton was talking about it so they painted it red so it would show right up on the film and um and and swing line decided to produce red staplers because of how iconic milton and that damn stapler were so and became one of their best sellers, uh, if not their best, just because of this movie. Because of this movie and the fact that a red stapler just stands out. 
Oh, I'm gonna make a. I'm gonna make a uh, particular statement with my red stapler. The last tidbit has to do with music, and I, and it doesn't. The reason why I'm telling you all of this right now is because it doesn't really apply to our conversation, but it is interesting. So in 1999, a lot of the movies that were coming out were were very central to the time, but in a more sort of this is kind of acceptable music, quote unquote, acceptable music like rock or um, jazz or or other kinds of music that's been used in movies before with a white cast. And Mike Judge said, no, this is a movie about screwing the system. And what better music than screwing the system than rap? The producers hated it. The producers hated the idea. They wanted to include popular songs for the uh, for the time the time period. So you know, as films move on to the decades and more and more people watch them, they could get a sense of what music, uh, what 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 music people were listening to in 1999. Well, don't worry, you can find that any anywhere, uh, dear listener. As if you haven't heard a 90s tune before, but I think it was more of a money issue because not only did they not like the music because they thought you know th- with these black artists were singing for white cast members. Um, I think it was a money grab because they would have gotten higher royalties every time somebody, you know, purchased the movie because they would have had a record agreement or they would have had an agreement with the music that there was revenue sharing there. So I I think that was a a money thing. Um, But could you imagine? Could you imagine this movie with different lyrics behind you know ron livingston's peter walking in and just not giving an f about anything because he's under the hypnotist's calming sort of half hypnotized spell imagine 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 chumbawamma instead of damn feels good to be a gangster imagine just flipping flipping that script it just sounds awful, 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 awful. We are going to dive into that idea more. Stay tuned. We will be right into it. My guest host today is Ed Hansen. Ed earned his PhD from the Combined Social and Industrial Organizational psychology program at Northern Illinois University. Wow, it's a mouthful. In 2014, and he now teaches as one of the specialized teaching faculty members in Florida State University's psychology department, where he teaches a variety of courses, including IO, research methods, psych of personality, and social psych. You might also recognize him from NITOP or the STP Facebook page, one that gets shout out a lot here. This page is actually how Ed and I met and conversed and talked about our love of movies. And so that's why he's on the show today. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Alex. Yeah, it is pretty funny. Like during the pandemic, I just started noticing like, hey, this Alex guy, uh, everything he shares, I'm like, I'm connecting to it. And whether it's movies or your teaching approach. So 
Uh, I, I was kind of secretly hoping that you were going to invite me to do one of these someday. So I'm very <laughs> glad to have the opportunity. I'm always wait, looking in the in the weeds. I'm just like Homer behind the bushes. Hmm. Not thinking about anything in particular, but I am watching. So, yeah, I I am. I'm very happy to have you on. And again, maybe it was my uh, just blinders, I suppose, that I didn't see that sooner. But, you know, sooner is never is better than never. Right. I messed uh, 100%. up. A hundred percent. I was a late bloomer, too. Yes. It's OK. Thank you. OK, I appreciate that. Uh, so before we jump into discussing office space. I always like to ask my guests, especially those who are also instructors of psychology, uh, what their thoughts are about film as a you know art form in general, and then using film in classes you're teaching, that kind of thing. Well, as an art form, um, I have always loved film. Uh, when, my, when I was in high school, my dad and I, we really bonded over watching movies together. We would watch those American Film Institute 100 greatest movies, 100 greatest comedies, and we would watch things that we would have never otherwise heard of. And it led to so many good discussions with him. And so we fast forward now to when I was in college and I took a world cinema class, which was eye-opening in a totally different kind of Right. You know, I didn't love every movie, but some of them today are still my favorite films of all time. And I had such great conversations about a lot of them. So I've always... Um, loved film but at the same time i was taking that college course i was introduced to psychology in college i started mm -hmm. as a different major i changed as a sophomore and that's me so that's me too we were just joking before the show listener before we started recording how very similar our um life trajectories have been but no please continue <laughs> it's true i i might be bizarro alex okay uh, or I could be Bizarro Ed. I mean, it's true. These are two very common white person names. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll see if we get to the bottom of that by the end of this episode. <laughs> Perhaps. But, um, but no, like I was discovering my interest of psychology and I was drawn to how it applies to our everyday life. And of course, film applies to our everyday life in so many ways. Even an absurdist comedy is going to relate to our life. And so with my students, I'm always about making it connect to their own lives. I always want to keep in mind that most of my students are not going to be psychologists. What are they going to take away from this? How is this going to be yeah. meaningful? And using film is a really, really good way to do that. Now, I rarely go into like full on dive into the deep end showing a, a, an entire movie. Okay. Um, I think that myself, I'm a little too distractible. So I worry if my students are going to focus on the wrong details, but not the movies that I play for them. <laughs> well with office face i don't know i don't want them to just remember the o face i want them to remember the io face the io <laughs> face exactly yes yeah and so uh no in reality though i i sprinkle in these clips i make references to things they've never heard of but by showing them the clips mm -hmm. uh it really solidifies it for them and and hopefully it's a nice way for them to connect to the material in an even better way yeah, I fully agree with that last sentiment. And um, for anyone who might be at the APS uh, STP Teaching Institute, that's the message that I'm bringing for my talk. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Thanks for that quote, Ed. I appreciate it. I'm just going to oh, be blazing you on the, the title slide. 
<laughs> there because it, it it sums up exactly uh, the message of the the talk. So I might as well just not give the talk. I'll just play that clip. I'll just stand awkwardly at the podium and just play that clip of you because I'm going to have well, we saved a lot of time today already. Yes, it's perfect. Ah, oh, no prep. Uh, so. Well, now that we've discussed film in general, Ed, I wanted to get your um, take on the why behind choosing Office Space for our discussion today. Well, when you reached out to me, you know, part of me was like, well, I'm open to anything. If he has a great idea and it's a film that I like, let's let's dive into it. Now I'll look at something in a new way. But uh, then I realized you've done almost 50 episodes and mm-hmm. there hadn't been a single I.O. film. And yes, I was a psychologist. This, no, is, this is kind of a sore spot uh, for us, Alex, mm-hmm. because IO is neglected in so many so neglected. introductory psychology books. And it's really perhaps one of the most applicable to our students that are not going to be going into research fields. They are going to be working in jobs. And so psychology of the workplace is just infinitely relatable. Even if they don't see it today, they will see it down the road. And it just so happens it's one of my favorite cult classic movies anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's a great IO film. One of my first IO teachers, Lisa Finkelstein, uh, she was a big fan of the film and, and used it a lot when she was teaching her organizational psychology class. So a lot of good reasons to pick this one for sure. And I'm so glad you did because I sheepishly will say, but I will be honest that, yes, I was neglecting IO and it may have been on... I I don't I'm just kidding. I don't think it was on purpose. I but I you do raise the point that it's not on our radars uh and and we feel bad about that. And uh, <laughs> I am I am well I I guess I should speak for for myself and not for everyone. I feel bad about that. I'm actually going to restructure my intro psych class. I haven't been teaching it as the typical formula um for many years now in the topic per week or like dis- sub-discipline per week or whatever it is. I kind of teach it as a scientific literacy course and I'm actually going to even dive further into that. And so with what you just said about IO and the psychology of the workplace being applicable to not just the um, psychology majors, but pretty much anybody who takes a psychology class, it's something useful that they can take you know, in whatever profession that they're getting their, you know, they're doing their major in. Right. I mean, pandemic, pandemics notwithstanding, uh, most of our work experiences are worth with other people, right? right? So for me, I was actually introduced to IO in grad school. I went there with the social focus. And then I started seeing all this applied social psychology mm-hmm. in the workplace, just like it can be applied in sports psychology or political psychology. The psych of the workplace, it, it just really pulled me in. Yeah. And and so I, as part of a push for the meld of the two, you know, knowing what the psychology is, the science of that, but, you know, making it useful for everyone to be there and to be a part of my conversation. I'm really figuring out, trying to figure out ways to not flip a 101 style class and but still have engagement, you know, with uh, with a more luxury format kind of in-class kind of vibe. So IO's making a comeback. And it's it's pretty much just because you said what you said just now, Ed. I've, I've made the decision. I've made the decision. You can, you can write that on your CV. I'm going to put that on my CV. Person. Exactly right. 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel Perfect. very good about this. Perfect. So I am glad that you chose Office Space because while it was not my first uh, Mike Judge movie, uh, actually Beavis and Butthead was my first Mike Judge, even though I wasn't allowed to watch it. Um, <laughs> but then King of the Hill, I was allowed to watch that for some reason, I guess, because it was on network TV. Because I was on network. That's yeah. much safer. Yeah, yeah, much safer. Although it was kind of funny because I wasn't allowed to watch uh, the Simpsons. So I think my my parents were doing a calculation between Bobby Hill <laughs> and Bart Simpson. And they were like, Bobby seems more like Alex. Let's let's have him. Let's have Alex model himself on on Bobby <laughs> and not Bart. That's the only thing that I can think of. Fair enough. So let's jump in to the I.O. aspects. And because I am coming um, as a I.O. novice, Ed's going to indulge me in a little learning. Uh, I know that he just started a summer class, but I'm going to ask him to teach me I.O. 101 here. So what I, I think the structure of the discussion ed is uh, discussing characters in their environments and it sort of the movie to me is two movies and so i think a lot of the focus does come from the beginning half of the movie if you will um which is a focus on the tagline which is uh work sucks um because it does and so I want to talk about the two main characters, Peter, played by Ron, Ron Livingston, and Joanna, played by Jennifer Aniston, and an exploration of their work environments. So, Ed, give me some I.O. love in here. Okay, so one of the great things about teaching I.O. is that so many of my students are already coming in with so many relevant work experiences yeah you know some of them have worked in offices some of them have worked at, many of them have worked in restaurants and so um these characters for better or for worse their experiences are relatable and so um where i like to really start off with peter of course he's the main character but also one of the things that really drew me to the social io program at Northern Illinois was they had a scholar, Amanda Durek, who worked in motivation. Mm -hmm. And motivation is one of these notoriously difficult things to pin down because yeah. like the motivation chapter in IO, it's like, okay, here's a list of all these theories and they all have moderately strong implications for the field. So it's, <laughs> so, <laughs> so take so your you pick. don't want to just focus, but you know, they, they know the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Sure. They know a couple of the basics. But you talk about a person like Peter and, oh, my gosh, this poor guy, he just doesn't have it in him to do this software job anymore. Right. Right. It's unclear how long he's been doing it, but he's in his 20s, so not for that long. And so he's trying to find the motivation. But when he's talking to the Bobs, the consultants, mm -hmm. and he says, it's not that I'm lazy, it's that I don't care. That is one of the classic quotable lines from the film. Right. Next better looks like a Peter Gibbons. Uh-huh. Oh, there you are. We're just talking about you. You must be Peter Gibbons. Uh-huh. Terrific. I'm Bob Slidell. This is my associate, Bob Porter. Oh, hi, Bob. Bob? Pretty much go ahead and grab a seat and join us for a minute or two. 
see, what we're actually trying to do here is we're just, we're trying to get a feel for how people spend their day at work. So if you would, would you walk us through a typical day for you? Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door. That way Lumberg can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Tell but, uh, space out? Yeah. I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch, too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. Uh, Peter, would you be a good sport and indulge us and just tell us a little more? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you something about TPS reports. TPS uh, The thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. Don't, don't care? It's a problem of motivation, all right? Now, if I work my ass off and Initech ships a few extra units, I don't see another dime. So where's the motivation? And here's something else, Bob. I have eight different bosses right now. I beg your pardon? Eight bosses. Eight? Eight, Bob. So that means that when I make a mistake, I have eight different people coming by to tell me about it. That's my only real motivation, is not to be hassled. That and the fear of losing my job. But you know, Bob, that'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Would you bear with me for just a second, please? OK. What if, and believe me, this is so <laughs> hypothetical. But what if you were offered some kind of a stock option equity sharing program? Would that do anything for you? I don't know, I guess. Listen, I'm going to go. Uh, it's been really nice talking to both of you guys. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah, the pleasure's you. all on this side yes. of the table, trust me. Good luck with your layoffs, all right? I hope your firings go really well. Okay. And Great. he goes on to talk about it. He talks about, well, okay, why should I care? Why should I work harder? Why should I work harder uh, to crank out a few extra lines of code every day, every night, putting in this extra work? In a tech, the company is going to make a little bit extra money. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to see a dime of that. Mm -hmm. And so this goes back to like a classic cognitive motivational theory, Vroom's expectancy theory, okay. where he talks about there's three main components uh, to motivation that lead to an increased effort. We're seeing a lot of withdrawal from Peter, but in right. theory, we're trying to maximize effort. So first of all, it's kind of like the growth mindset. Is more effort going to lead to better performance? Okay. If a person thinks that if they work harder, they're not going to perform any better, well, they're not going to work harder. Mm -hmm. But then the instrumentality and the valence portion are where Peter is really, really struggling because he actually seems like he's good at his job. He seems like he knows code. He seems like he knows the software code and, and yeah. that he doesn't feel a lack of competence. Okay. But, I agree. I agree, especially with the t whole TPS reports. Um, yeah, he just forgot. He just forgot. You know? Yeah, and he has to tell so many people that it oh, was we'll a, get to that. a quick mistake. We'll... Yeah. Okay. But um, so he says, all right, so if I perform better, will it lead to a better outcome? Mm. Well, not for Peter. He just established it, that he's not going to make more money. He's not going to get a promotion. He's just going to have worked harder to create more widgets, if you will. Right. Right. Yeah. And the so classic widget problem. 
Yeah. And so the valence is the outcome valued. Absolutely not. He's going to work himself into the ground for a company that doesn't really care about his well-being. And that's a major theme right now. It's like, what is the company's responsibility for the mental health of its employees? That's not something that was being talked about so much in 1999 when no. this film came out. I think it's a, I think it's a great film to watch now. And I, 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 I sort of felt similar thing or thought them similar things um, with current discussions on Twitter and other spaces uh, regarding work these days uh, and the message of the movie. Oh, hundred percent. Wow. Like there's this massive group of people that for not just one reason, a collection of many, many reasons um, are leaving their bad jobs, right? Yeah. They, they're, they're just saying, you know what? It is time to take this job and shove it. That's one of the songs in the movie. It's time to just say, like, I really don't need to continue this. Like, sometimes people continue in a bad job because they think they don't have any options. Mm -hmm. But through the pandemic, we have seen we've got options. We don't have to move to the city to work for the big company if we can remotely. We can do all these different kinds of things. We don't have to be so geographically, geographically constrained anymore. And again, that's just like one component, right. right? Not even talking about toxic workplace and bad leadership and all these other kinds of things. But getting back to like Peter's motivation, mm -hmm. um, is he intrinsically motivated or is he extrinsically motivated or is he just totally apathetic, right? So he's mostly apathetic. The Bobs ask him, the Bobs being the consultants, uh, well, what if it was some stock options? Uh -huh. Would that be enticing to you? And, and he looks at me, he's like, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. But it's not really tied to anything that great. And when you look at, a, we'll just say a typical manager, they say, yeah, I want to wave a carrot in front of someone. I, I want them to work harder. So I'm going to give them a bigger carrot. Why wouldn't that be a better way to motivate them? And it's because they, they have to care about it. They have mm -hmm. to like see these other things. So another classic motivational theory is like self-determination theory. Okay. And in order for a person to be even to even have a conversation of whether or not they can be intrinsically motivated to succeed or to do something, kind of have to have three things. You have to have autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Mm -hmm. uh, competence, we already talked about. He doesn't really suffer from that. He knows how to do his job. Right. Relatedness. It even seems like he's got a little cohort of guys that he feels like, okay, these are my people. Um, he, he feels like a, a bond yeah. uh, with, with Michael and Samir, and he shares his experiences with them. He even talks on the phone to Milton. Nobody yeah. likes Milton, and he even talks on the phone to Milton, right? 100%. So a lot of, high, yeah, I would say high relatedness in, in his profession. But the lack of autonomy in a tech is soul crushing. It's so rough. And to, right, it's to like, work in that cubicle, I would um, ask to be moved, to be honest, if I had to sit next to, uh, thank you for calling in a tech. Oh, please. Or whatever. <laughs> whatever it is. Just a moment. Just a moment. Oh, my God. <laughs> that would, I would die. Have you ever worked in like a cubicle office space? I have before? not, luckily. I, I worked in fast food, but of course things are moving rapidly in those places. But no, I've not worked in an office like that. Uh, fortunately, me neither. I've never worked in the food service industry either. 
So that's just another good thing. When I talk to my students, I remember once when I was even a student, I said, well, it can't be as bad as people describe. And <laughs> uniformly, they're always like, no, it's worse yes. than we describe. We're not telling you the unmentionable <laughs> things that happen. Right. Yes. Uh, I would say uh, I luckily did not have any, have many uh, of those. And I, I don't know if I could remember any uh, gnarly, gnarly, gnarly ones. But yeah. When people say, yeah, this is really crappy, it's a thousand times worse. Yeah. But I mean, for Peter and the whole crew over there, the, the lack of or the lack of autonomy over what they're doing, mm -hmm. the lack of control in, you know, it's like how they want to spend their day, how they want to spend their time. Like when Lumberg calls him and he's not coming <laughs> oh in on God. Saturday and he says, just so you know, it's a full schedule. We it's not a half day. We're here the whole day. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, millennials, I'm not crazy about uh any kind of generational research. It's so oversimplified so oversimplified. Right. But um, you know, younger workers today are looking for a lot more flexibility in their schedule, mm -hmm. which again at that time wasn't really a thing. You just showed up when work was working and that was it. And you were probably going to do some overtime to boot. But now we've got flex scheduling. We've got uh, people doing condensed work weeks, all kinds of things. So that's that's been a pretty positive change. Yeah, uh, I think they, they could have gone in. They could have gone in a lot deeper with that, too. Uh, in the Yeah, in the I mean, they definitely had other things they wanted to do with the film. But in 90 minutes, I think they cover quite a bit. Yeah, that's I, I do like that. Um, and uh hawaiian shirt days i'm glad that peter rips off the is this good for the company question banner oh my god yeah and it's, you know sometimes they say well um you're not motivated let's try and change the workspace let's try and make it a more motivating workspace you know putting up those um little inspirational posters with the pictures of kittens and teamwork underneath and all these different kinds of things are are very very motivational they would want you to believe but of course that's that's not how it works so giving people yeah that's autonomy at Inatech is hawaiian shirt day a week from friday right not not this friday it's it's not even an every week thing it's just like coming up in two weeks hawaiian <laughs> shirt day Yes, and a random person coming around going, oh, look like somebody's had a case of the Mondays. Oh, a case of the Mondays. I find myself saying that when I have a case of the Mondays to other people just to bring me in, bring them into my case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I was younger, when I when I saw this movie in um in high school, when I was younger, um, as a follow up to this. I would say, well, looks like somebody has a case of the insert any other day other than Monday. Oh, so somebody has a case of the Fridays. <laughs> what does that even mean while you're excited? I don't know. Just go with it. Yeah, just go with just, it. Don't just say, go with no. it. Haven't Shush. you ever taken an improv class? Just go with this. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> yes. And me. Um, oh, my goodness. So. Which one do you think best explains um, Peter's overall character arc in the movie? That's a good question. When you say which one is it, I'm always so reluctant because, I mean, it's <laughs> I the lack of autonomy 
and the fact that he doesn't see him working hard leading to anything good. I think I would go with, um, I, I think I would go with Room's expectancy theories just because, like, no matter what he does, he doesn't see this getting any better. Mm-hmm. That depressing ass quote when he talks about every day is the worst day of his life. Yes. Because since he started working in the office, every day is worse than the one previous. So I was sitting in my cubicle today and I realized ever since I started working, um, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, That's on the worst day of my life. What about today? Is today the worst day of your life? Yeah. Wow, that's messed up. I'm sorry. Go on. Is there any way that you could sort of just zonk me out so that, like, I I don't know that I'm at work in here? Could I come home and think that I've been fishing all day or something? That's really not what I do, Peter. (laughs) However, the good news is, I think I can help you. I want you to do something for me, Peter. I want you to try and relax. And so, to me, that's no longer about, he doesn't just want to do the software without having to do the TPS reports. It's a much bigger issue than that. So, he doesn't see, if I change my approach, if I have better outcomes, I'm still going to be in this dead end job. And I think that that's the biggest problem for him. Yeah, I'll add on to that, that I think Mike Judge shows that rather well without with very few uh, with very few words in the uh, beginning of the movie uh, where he is uh, in traffic. He's stuck in traffic. He sees the lane next to him move. And so he gets into that lane, of course. Uh, our eyes are always bigger than our stomachs uh, when we do that. And so, of course, the 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 lane stops. And so he weaves back in and that lane stops. And with without any words, essentially, he shows every person's nightmare. Who has grown up in a moderately dense Uh, or highly dense area. Yeah, and I mean, he's going nowhere in his job. He's going nowhere in traffic. No matter what he does, he's always making the wrong choice. There's literally nothing he can do. And he sees the elderly man with the walker just pulling away. He sees the world going by him. I don't know if you ever felt that way in grad school, but sometimes you saw people going on and having lives, and you're like, I'm still here in grad school. And that, that, that was a real experience. But I mean, at least we still had some autonomy over what we were trying to do. So I yeah. come back to the being able to take control of your life in some way. Then he starts to totally disengage. Then he starts to totally withdraw. And he's hilariously rewarded for it. And <laughs> equity theory, he's seeing as like, okay, normally when we talk about equity theory, I'm working harder and other people are getting rewarded. Mm-hmm. He's seeing his colleagues working harder and he's the one getting rewarded. Right. So he's actually really sensitive to that. He feels guilty about it. He doesn't want the promotion. And he sees his friends who actually are pretty content in their jobs. They're not happy, but they're more content in their work than he is. And they're the ones that are going to get the short end of the stick for just trying to do the right thing. And so he's sensitive to the inequity 
And he also sees it in Joanna's job. So, I mean, I think that that is he starts to have an influence in her life as well. Yeah, that's a perfect segue because I wanted to jump to Joanna next. Before I do, uh, I wanted to uh, add in there with the you know accidental uh, promotion that he gets and that he he sees his friends, which is why he comes up with the other movie, <laughs> the other half of the movie where sure. I reference this yeah. is essentially two two movies. The second half of the movie is this uh, classic. Uh, let's just skim some fractions of sense off the top in this pre 2000s computer world. And uh, we'll eventually make a lot of money, but it'll be slow. And then the next the next day they have like 300 grand. And they're like, ah, we're going to go to jail. He comes up with that whole plan. Because he sees the inequity, which is which is great. Oh, yeah. When people feel that they work in an unjust workplace, uh, there's all kinds of counterproductive work behaviors that they can do that. That's like a, a very I.O. term CWB's counterproductive work behavior, workplace behaviors. And it can range from sabotage uh, to withdrawal and not working hard. Uh, it, it could be. I knew someone who will remain nameless at a summer job I had when I was a kid <laughs> who destroyed some company property when he felt that he was being unjustly singled out okay. for various different things. He uh, he had to do way more random drug tests than the rest of us that summer. They just didn't like him. <laughs> oh, my so goodness. So he took it out on uh, the company. He was destroying company property, and, and it was this counterproductive workplace behavior. But sometimes it can just be not malicious, but maybe it's just like, Alex, I feel like you and I are both prone to excessive small talk if we don't uh, check ourselves. And yeah. so that can definitely be counterproductive in the workplace as well. But yeah, it, it was leading up to this big thing. And of course, Milton is another good example of that we can unpack later Yeah, uh, with, with his retribution. Got to talk about Milton for sure. <laughs> but no, the second half of the movie was all because of inequity in the workplace for sure. An unjust workplace. I would agree. Yeah. So the two sort of have sort of meld together. I, I won't say that they're two completely separate movies. Of course, that doesn't make much sense. But yeah, you can kind of see that there are two plot lines that both have resolutions to them. And one kicks up while the other one sort of dwindles down. But before we go into any uh, of the sort of tertiary tertiary things, I want to talk about the other main character played by Jennifer Aniston, Joanna. So, uh, Ed, tell us about Joanna's job. So Joanna is a waitress at Tchotchkes. Mm -hmm. Spelled and... incorrectly. <laughs> Probably just because it's more fun that way, Alex. Uh, <laughs> probably because people wouldn't have been able to teach Cut. Oh my gosh. And like when she agrees to go to lunch with him and you learn that there are two identical restaurants, yes. a Chili's and a Flingers on both sides of the Tchotchkes. Oh my gosh. That's that's strip mall America, though, don't you think? It is. My in-laws are from Orlando. I've seen these places. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I used to. Yes, I used to live um, not far from a collection of these sort of like on 
opposite blocks. Actually, speaking of CSUN, Cal State Northridge, where where I did my undergrad and masters, um, had uh, the street, the major street behind it, did have like literally these similar dining restaurants sort of along this street maybe one block and a half later or something like that it was it was rough oh yeah and i mean so she probably doesn't love her job there's like she works she walks into the flingers and she's like, oh this place is nice and it's probably just like uh the place that she works but without the terrible environment and culture and boss and leadership Oh my gosh. So poor Joanna, when she's having that conversation with the boss, uh, I think that conversation, if you were to pick one clip on its own that could work the best with a college student audience, uh -huh. it's the manager talking to her about her flair. And I, um, we need to talk about your flair. Really? I, I have 15 pieces on. I, uh, well, okay, 15 is the minimum. Okay. Okay. Now, you know, it's up to you whether or not you want to just do the bare minimum or, uh, well, like Brian, for example, has 37 pieces of flair on today. Okay. Mm. A terrific smile. Okay. So you, you want me to wear more? <laughs> Look, Joanna. Yeah. People can get a cheeseburger anywhere. Okay. They come to tchotchkes for the atmosphere and the attitude. Okay. That's what the flair is about. It's about fun. Yeah. Okay. So more than, yeah. <laughs> Look, we want you to express yourself, okay? Now, if you feel that the bare minimum is enough, then okay. But some people choose to wear more, and we encourage that, okay? You do want to express yourself, don't you? Yeah. Okay, great, great. That's all I... Oh, my gosh. That's the requirement for the job. You're asking her to do the job. You're not asking her to do the job in the way that you see fit. And of course, there's that terrible <laughs> coworker, Brian. Oh my God. Who's just like really bouncing off guy. the walls. Everybody really hates that guy, which is a credit to the actor. I wish I knew the actor's name. He did a, an amazing job. But the fact that he's wearing 37 pieces of flair, and she says, if you want me to wear 37 pieces of flair. His name is Todd Duffy. I hope Todd Duffy has had a good life because he has made me laugh many times. <laughs> and he, uh, he, he's got a lot of flair and she's supposed to meet that expectation. And one of the things that it always reminded me of from an IO perspective is that in any job, there are these extra things that you are supposed to do, not for yourself, but for the benefit of the company. Yes. And these are called organizational citizenship behaviors, OCBs. Mm -hmm. And there's a variety of different uh, categories of different OCBs, but women in particular are punished for not doing OCBs. It's kind of the expectation that wow. they're going okay. to be a, a more helpful coworker, that they're mm -hmm. going to be a more courteous coworker, a more thoughtful coworker. Whereas if men, uh, do these more communal OCBs, it's like, wow, look at Alex. Isn't that so nice how he's always willing to help if someone needs a substitute <laughs> teacher? He jumps right in there. That's so nice of him. He's so nice. Yeah. And if a person and if a woman is nice, they're like, 
yeah, I appreciate her niceness, but I, it's almost a given that it's the expectation. Yeah. And it's this double standard that they are held to much different standards. And here you also have uh, someone that's going above and beyond in some ways. We don't really know if she's a good waitress or not. They don't really get into that. But he does tell her that yeah. she should smile more. Mm-hmm. And now there's there's a lot of loaded language whenever a man tells a woman to smile more. Of course. Emotional labor uh, for people in the service industry, whether it is customer service at an airport or in a restaurant or talking to your cable representatives, whoever. Um, emotional labor, you got to fake it till you make it. And that takes its toll. And the boss says, you know, they come here for the atmosphere and the attitude. And just by that statement, I was like, neither of these seem very good at Chachkis. This is a toxic work environment. (laughs) I don't pick up. I don't want an overpriced burger at a place with a bad attitude and a bad atmosphere. But that seems like, at least from the waitstaff's perspective, exactly what Chachkis is. And um, I think, again, students would really resonate with this part of the movie just because sad but true they have a lot of examples of uh poor work environments in the restaurant industry it's a tough business but it's also one you know he's saying to her you want to be the kind of person who does the minimum how much you want to bet that she makes the minimum right she probably Probably makes less than minimum less than the minimum because she's on tips probably so she she is making less than minimum wage and being asked to put out this maximal effort and to express herself through flair and so Boy, it's it's just really bad there, Alex. Yeah, I can I can dig that. Um, I, I luckily never had a work environment like that, even McDonald's, even McDonald's, um, because really everyone was doing their minimum there. Fair enough. Yeah, I I always feel a little guilty when we talk about our our work horror stories because I've never had a quote unquote bad boss. You know, that, okay. oh that would be an interesting one. Bad bosses would be an interesting one to sort of unpack for. I uh, horrible bosses, mm, right? Yes, horrible bosses uh, and it, horrible it bosses scarier. too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, I've never had the 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 boss that I really didn't like going to work for. Probably the closest I ever had was just the boss I didn't really see very much, which is not better. But we just kind of slacked off anyway, and like you say, we weren't. That this is not a situation where we were highly intrinsically motivated to do a great job at our summer jobs while we were college students. True. Uh, and I wanted to uh, to add to your uh, description of OCBs in, in it's more of a it's more of a comment than a question. I, I think I could have guessed if you had said to me. What which gender do you think um, bears the, the brunt of the OCBs? I, I think I would have been very quick to say women in this case. Um, and and that differential kind of behavior that you got there because it is completely unsurprising to me but also very appalling well sure you like look in even forward-thinking academic departments for example uh women faculty members are consistently on more committees than male faculty members and this would be an example of the ocb civic virtue right nobody wants to be on more committees nobody wants to be on uh, more, you know, sometimes we have the ones that are near and dear and close to our hearts, right. but otherwise there are some of these things that we're going on them because, well, someone needs to go on them and I guess I'll do it. 
And unfortunately, uh, women just fall on that sword more often than not. Right. And they're not always going to be rewarded for it either. While we're on it, the other two are conscientiousness and sportsmanship. Okay. Uh, conscientiousness is of the big five, really the one that Iowa psychologists spend the most time thinking about. Okay. It's definitely going to be the gold standard. Like if you want to look, it predicts so many positive things for like academic success, but it's also going to predict a lot of positive outcomes for uh, success in the workplace, missing less work, getting things in in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. If you're hiring conscientious workers, you're already ahead of the rest of the field. So it's definitely the gold standard from the big five. And then sportsmanship is just kind of like, it's a little harder to pin down, but it's not gossiping about people in the workplace. If you get a raise, not to say, hey, did you get a raise too? I got a raise. I feel pretty good about it. And so you, <laughs> you, you can tell your, your significant other, you can tell your mom, they want to hear about those things. But your coworkers, that's not the place to, to be talking about those kinds of things. Now, does that, uh, you said it was hard to define, but the question that just popped in my head is that um, what about other successes? So successes that are personal, right? So not company successes, but successes that are personal, um, that don't have this uh, like a, the same sort of connotation as, oh, I got a raise. Did you get a raise? Yeah, I think that that isn't necessarily going to be a negative component of sportsmanship, okay. right? I mean, some cultures are definitely more open to like talking about our families sure. and talking about our personal lives at work. And um, it's definitely... Some people think that's really inappropriate is the, is, is the honest answer, right? Some sure. people think it's like, why does Alex always talk about his kids in class? Why does that <laughs> always talk about his kids in class? I, yeah. I've had, you know, this said in a student evaluation, for example, right? And so yeah. sharing your successes or those kinds of things, uh, some people will find it more acceptable or more offensive than others. But I think it really has more to do with those like work salient things. Okay. So it's like, um, I just got, uh, I just got a compliment from the boss who never gives compliments, or I'm going to just sort of make other people feel bad about, uh, the way that things are going for them, or if downsizing, if everyone knows that it's happening, you know, that's definitely an element of this film is like, sometimes you do know that one of your colleagues is unlikely to make it through this downsizing process. And so how do you manage that? I think. That's more of a reflection of the OCB of sportsmanship, probably. Okay, I like that. Yeah, for it, the down the whole, this is not downsizing, but it is downsizing sort of. Uh, so, for vibe. example, not telling Milton that he's no longer on payroll would be bad sportsmanship. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and get back into some of the uh, other IO things that uh, Ed has in store for us. So stay tuned, listener. We'll be right back. Howdy. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you're enjoying the conversation. Over the past two years, the podcast has grown, and that's mostly in part to folks like you, the listeners. We've also had wonderful luck receiving support from the Society for the Teaching of Psychology, APA Division II Small Partnerships Grant. It's been a fun ride, and we want to keep it going. So we need your help. There are several ways that you can support this show. 
You can share episodes with your social media networks so we can grab new listeners. You can join our fledgling Patreon program. You can contribute directly using PayPal. Or you can purchase some sweet merchandise with our logo at our Spreadshirt merch store. All of those things can be found on the website cinemasychpod.swanpsych.com. But perhaps the best thing that you can do is to keep listening and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter so we know you've listened. Thanks. And now back to the show. And we are back with Dr. Ed Hansen. He is talking to us today about Office Space, the cult classic from 1999, the best year in film, in my opinion. So, Ed, we were talking about in the uh, first segment, we were talking about the two main characters and their jobs. Now, I kind of want to move into the periphery of the film and talk a little bit about the characters um, that surround Peter and Joanna. And I love the note that you wrote about the Bobs because they're consultants in the film that are brought in by Inatech to downsize the company. and. You said they give them a bad rep. You, please expand on that. Well, I, I, <clears throat> I meant that they give IO consultants a bad rep sure. because I think that a lot of the time, who was the character that said they're bringing someone in? You know what that means. There's this fear right. that any time an outsider comes in, uh, that it's going to be anything you tell them can be held against you. Anything you tell them can be used uh, to get you fired. and. In this case, he was 100% correct. <laughs> but in many cases, that's not the case. So, you know, you have to acknowledge that this kind of consulting 100% does happen, right? Okay. You, you bring in people uh, that they are trying to find ways to increase efficiency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I feel like it's worth noting that increasing efficiency, before anyone really cared about like mental health at the workplace or okay. anything like this, it was all about psychologists trying to figure out how to do things more efficiently. Frank and Lillian Gilbreth, uh, way back in like the 1920s, mm-hmm. they were just, they did all these studies, a lot of them with the military, mm-hmm. and they did what are now referred to as the time and motion studies. And so it's kind of like, if you know how uh, to shoot a gun, or if you know how to take apart a gun, but you go into the military, they're going to teach you the most efficient way to do those things. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And all of this definitely was tied back to the work of Frank and Lillian Galbraith, where they were saying, okay, any job can be done. What is the most efficient way that we can do it? Kind of like what made early McDonald's such an immediate success was like, we're going to get everything on a production line. Mm -hmm. We're going to do everything really fast. You know, Ford Model T's are being done on the production line. The Industrial Revolution didn't happen that long ago. And everything is about efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. Simultaneously, um, workers are like being worked to the bone. This is when unions start to come in and they like, okay, we need breaks because if we just are working on these, especially like mindless tasks, we're going to lose ourselves. We're going to drift far away. We're going to go somewhere (laughs) else and we're not going to be able to be as efficient anymore because we haven't had a break. Right. So efficiency isn't always about doing the absolute most in the least amount of time. And then 
sometimes a, a business would realize, wow, uh, by giving breaks, we can actually increase efficiency more. So all of that was kind of early, early IO psychology. Okay. Now, now you jump ahead to what these guys are trying to do, and they're trying to trim the fat. They're trying to find who is not working out. And so uh, that is definitely going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, including some IO psychologists. So like uh, the author of my textbook that I use, he's actually passed, but his name is Paul Mashinsky. And it was kind of his life's work to make this really good IO psychology textbook. And he shared a lot of his consulting stories from over the years. Okay. There, oh, like and there was, uh, there, there was one of his stories where he had collected all this data for a company. And I said, wow, this, this is amazing. This is so rich. And look at these people. We want to reward these people. And Dr. Mashinsky's like, well, we told the employees that this was anonymous. So I can't tell you who those people are. Yeah. And they're like, well, we're not trying to punish people. We're just trying to reward people. And you can see where this is going. Paul's like, <laughs> oh no, it's, it, it, it's, I, I can't do that for you. And he said, well, we could do another survey where if you want to uh, collect the information and tell them that this is going to be uh, to potentially reward good employees. And they're like, no, then they won't be honest. We want the honest information. Mm-hmm. And he says, can't do that for you. Like we can do the second survey. And then they, they basically stopped working together because he said, and, you know, I won't do it. And they're like, you're trying to squeeze us for extra money to survey or one survey for the price of two. And uh, so so sometimes you are going to have those things happen. This is an example I talk about with my students is something that happens in a lot of fields, whether it's clinicians or IO psychology, but the science practitioner gap. Yeah. Right. You have what the science says. Then you have people out there and they're doing their own thing. Right. And so finding good people to cross that gap, that's such an important job. That's why I tell my students that, you know, they want to go and be clinicians. And even though I don't have a clinical background, I say, well, you want your clinical work to be informed by research. You want to be a good consumer of research. And so my IO psychology students that are going to go into consulting, they say, Dr. Hansen, I don't want to do, uh, you know, like master's thesis and dissertation and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but you need to know how to sort through this information and Mm -hmm. tell the company what is evidence-based and what isn't. Right. And so um, those kinds of things. And and to the Bob's credit, they're asking questions like, what is it that you would say you do here? Right. And so they're they're trying to say, what are the critical uh, components? What you do at Inatech is you take the specifications from the customers and you bring them down to the software engineers. Yes, y- yes, that's that's right. Well, then I just have to ask, why couldn't the customers just take them directly to the to the software people, huh? Well, uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, because engineers are not good at dealing with customers. Uh-huh. So you physically take the specs from the customer. Well. No, my, my secretary does that, or the facts. So then you must physically bring them to the software people. Well, no. Yeah, I mean, sometimes. Uh, what What would you say you do here? Well, look, I already told you. I deal with the goddamn customers so the engineers don't have to. I have people skills. 
I am good at dealing with people. Can't you understand it? What the hell is wrong with you people? It is a good example of someone who is just sort of the superfluous go-between middleman position. And so a lot of what IO psychologists actually do when, say they're instead of trying to help a company fire people, say they're trying to help a company hire people. Okay. And we want to make sure that these are not backroom handshake deals. We want to make sure that these are going to be, especially if we're going to support like diverse and inclusive hiring practices, we want to make sure that it's going to be based in those KSAOs. What knowledge, skills, abilities, and other things do you actually require? What do you need in order to do this job? And if your selection criteria is not based in those KSAOs, if it's not job analysis based selection criteria, get it out of there. Okay. And this is so hard because like you'll you'll come up with a nice structured interview for a manager to use. And then the manager's like, I just get a good read for people. And so you you've got all these biases that are coming in. Right. And that that's makes the whole situation worse. And that perpetuates the problem. Right. Right. And so when a person says, well, I just get a good read for people, usually that means they're hiring people who think the same way that they do. It's not exactly going to support diversity in thought. So you're going to have uh, people that are going on their guts, going with their intuition, not asking people the same questions. It's sort of like tech companies, probably like Inatech, they could have included this if it were done today. If there was a job interview question where they ask you these super creative, outside of the box kind of questions where it really doesn't have anything to do with your job, but they say, how many basketballs do you think fit in this room? And so you're like, I don't know. And they want to know if you're like deflating the basketballs or are they regulation basketballs? They want to see your thought process, sure. but it has nothing to do with anything that's important. And so it, it kind of reminded me of when they were talking to poor Michael Bolton and they get sidetracked by the, uh, you know, hey, what, what do you think your favorite song is? Oh, I just love them all. And they still don't like him. He's trying to play ball. He's trying to tell them exactly what they want to hear. Right. He said, I even told those guys I like Michael Bolton's music. <laughs> and he's just trying to do what they think they want him to do. And he's still not rewarded. They still don't see that he's a good software engineer. So they give, they give IO psychologists a bad name because uh, they don't stick to the script. They don't focus on just the KSAOs. They let their biases affect them. Mm-hmm. But like I said, these consultants exist and they are not one of the shinier, nicer sides of IO. But IO psychologists also do know how to go in and figure out who's not really contributing to the bottom line. Because really, I have a friend who is a IO psychologist for let's just say a very large corporation that does a lot of movies and has theme parks. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And she's worked for them as an IO psychologist for a long time. And I say, wow, you've worked for them for so long. Um, Why do you think this company values IO psychology so much? And she says, the honest truth is that they don't even think about it. It's just that you show them why it's valuable Uh and you really have to demonstrate. And so, in many ways, people entering the I.O. field, the biggest challenge for an I.O. psychologist is showing people what you do, showing people why this is important, showing people how the company can benefit from utilizing this knowledge. So it's our secret power. And we, we've got these things that not a lot of people know about. But even a person who's worked for a major corporation for a long, long time 
it's not like IO psychology is at the top of their to-do list. Like, oh, we need to think about these things. Oh, I I feel so bad for for IO consultants. I'm I'm real. I exist. <laughs> See me. Please, I beg you. This is why I'm valuable. Please, please accept my worth. Oh, that's so sad. So sad. So would you grade the bobs in their job? Then what would, okay, yes. What would you grade the bobs if uh, they were, if they were your students? Like doing like a little, little mock, uh, little mock consultation. Well, I would definitely mark them down uh, for not being able to uh, look past Samir's difficult to pronounce name. I oh, would, boy. Uh, yeah, that, that was a tough one. But um, no, I think that they, we, we didn't get a, a very big sample of their work. I, I would say it's passing, but there's some issues. <laughs> I'm comfortable saying that. <laughs> okay. We can't get a, we can't get a letter grade on John C. McGinley. Okay. That's fine. Oh, John C. McGinley in his performance gets an A plus. That's true. Yes. I will co-sign just, that. Just the, just the subtleties in his performance and like how excited he gets when you can see he's gearing up to ask Michael Bolton what his favorite Michael Bolton song <laughs> is or if they're related. The subtleties in his performance. I, I heard that they basically, uh, you know, they, they got that uh, the, those shots done in like a couple days. They just mm-hmm. went in, did their stuff. They were out and they did it well. Yeah, I, I, even that same kind of he even has the same sort of excited affectation when he's gearing up to ask Peter about the stock options like you can say if, from scene to scene. He just has that same giddiness like what yeah, about he does stock a lot of things options? With his, he does a lot of things with his shoulders yeah. and his mouth mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's a lot of wonderful nonverbals. I would say him and Gary Cole, those are my two favorite performances in the whole film. Gary Cole is Lumberg, of course. Yes, and that is a perfect segue to uh, the next topic that I wanted to ask you about, which is management. And the, uh, the, the detail is dropped in the conversation between the Bobs and Peter that he has eight different bosses. One of them is the VP of uh, it's it's on his door and I can't remember. It's on the parking spot. I, I, I know that he's the vice president of something yes. important, but let's let's get into this. Yeah, so so Lumberg is a he's, VP. He's one of the bosses. So he's the only boss that we know the name of. Right. And when you've got eight bosses, you say, what does that even look? Like? Well, a traditional organizational structure is probably more of a vertical structure, mm-hmm. right? You got president at the top, a couple of VPs that are going to oversee a few managers that oversee a couple assistant to the regional managers. And then you got the people that were <laughs> Dwight Schrute, yeah. them, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a traditional vertical structure. At a small company, a lot of the time you have the one boss and everyone kind of works under them, yep. like a small restaurant or something. And that's a very flat organizational structure. But where Peter Gibbons works, is what is referred to as a matrix structure. Oh my! And goodness. you're getting it from the top and the side. Oh God! And so basically, you don't just report to your boss; you report to the vice president of sales. You report to the vice president of finances. You report to the vice president of research and development. Oh my God! And then you also are going to have 
uh, people on the side over here that are going to be, I don't know, coordinators of something or other. And so in a cartoonishly elaborate matrix <laughs> uh, structure, he's got eight bosses. So when he messes up on the TPS reports, <laughs> he hears about it on the phone. Lumberg comes to his office. The other guy comes to his office mm -hmm. and he knows it's a problem. And this is a pre-email movie. It would be nice if he could right. just email all seven or eight bosses at once. I know about the TPS reports and I don't think it would still, I still don't think it would resolve this problem. <laughs> no, I don't and think it would so... <laughs> be. I think he would get several reply alls. Oh gosh, the, the, the infamous reply all when it does not need to be a reply all. Yes, and I think that would be, that not get out of. I think that would be the situation here. Yeah. So let's oh, focus man. specifically on Lumberg then, because Gary Cole, as we just said, um, does an amazing job as a person you would just love to punch in the face. I'm going to say it. Love to hate him. Yeah. You love to hate him. Now, I'm not a violent person, but I love to hate Bill Lumberg. And so it's definitely he's so passive aggressive with everything 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 is a question that you can't really say no to right and we really don't see him lead i'm glad that you didn't say let's talk about leadership you said let's talk about management because just because a person is a manager right doesn't mean that they are a leader right and a lot of the time within an organization uh the leaders are not the people in those leadership roles and so um, in my class, we talk about, you know, I, like motivation, there are many, many different theories of leadership, as you can imagine. Yes. And it's convoluted and complicated and all these different kinds of things. But when you look at how a person sort of wields their power, well, first of all, you have a very transactional style of leadership where it's like, okay, I can reward you, I can punish you. Mm -hmm. Is it uh, reward versus coercion? kind of power right then you have the people who are in a legitimate position it's like oh you can't talk back to them because they're the boss okay and they're in a legitimate position of authority then you have referential power and expertise and so he seems to have neither of those he is not respected by his workers at all and we don't really see that he brings any strengths to the table i did appreciate very much when the bobs asked him how much time he spent on TPS reports. And he got this little worried look on his face like, oh, my sweet deal might be in jeopardy. Yes. And it almost feels like that um, as the movie progresses, too, because um, things start unraveling right after that for his character. When Peter slides the envelope under his desk, they don't really get into it. But Peter, but Lumberg is not at his office the next day. He's just kind of missing. Right. So maybe he uh, maybe he got some bad news. Maybe he got the slip and he was actually uh, canned. This is sort of a dark tidbit, but there were a few different cuts of this film. Mm -hmm. And in one of in one of the cuts of the film, he does not survive the fire. I heard about that a long time ago, but I and for completely probably forgotten. Probably for the best, they did not include that. <laughs> yes, I mean it would have been Milton. It doesn't make anyone feel better for that to happen. Yeah, it would have been Milton's like final yeah. act of vengeance for sure, rather than just build burning down the building. As but he, he kind of just disappears. So you wonder what Mike Judge's favorite or preferred version of what he thinks happened to Lumberg, right? 
uh, is hopefully he got his just desserts, but he's probably now the president of whatever it is he was vice president of before. Yeah, maybe he sweet talked the bobs because you don't hear what his answer is. It just cuts to um, another scene. So you don't see, I mean, he could have just sweet talked to Bob's like, uh, you know, Peter does uh, non-committally, you know, sort of nonchalantly. They but they no, love that. So, um, yeah, he's, he's not a good boss. He is a boss that doesn't support his employees. He certainly he creates barriers. He doesn't create opportunities for success. He definitely makes things a lot harder. Uh, he seems to have like a really unjust way of uh, determining who is going to uh, do extra work on the weekends. Yeah. You know, he, maybe he just perceives Peter as spineless and isn't going to say no. Right. Um, but also, I don't think Lumberg is someone that people say no to very often. So I, I, I wasn't sure why Peter was so sure, so adamant that he was going to be the one that Lumberg asked to stay in. But he certainly was. Um, but yeah, it's funny. He's sort of this creating barriers, but also an absent or laissez-faire kind of leader. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. There was a, a recent review, Harvard Business Review did a survey where they asked like the worst things that their the employees' bosses can do. And like nine of the top 10 are actually what the bosses are not doing. And it's not giving them constructive feedback, okay. not yeah. uh, caring about them outside of the workplace, sure. not doing all of these different kinds of things. And really the only uh, like overtly negative thing that they were doing was to like take credit for someone else's idea. Uh, that being a bully wasn't the biggest problem with bad bosses. That's like the example that we think of. It's the stereotypical example. Sure. But uh, there's all kinds of inaction and lack of involvement and lack of caring. And I think that's really represented today. You know, I, we were talking about it a little bit earlier. This this movie that came out 23 years ago, it still plays. It yeah. still is as relevant as ever. The only thing that doesn't is the computers they're using. I love looking at the old computers. The old computers, the whole, the whole, we got to prepare for the year 2000 because computer, <laughs> computer clocks. I mean, leave it to Mike Judge to find some obscure problem to highlight in his movie, right? It, not many people know why Y2K was such a big deal. Um, it wasn't going to lead to the Armageddon that, uh, you know, was prophesied on, um, on major news networks, but it did need, to, it was a problem that needed to be handled. Uh, and Mike judge makes it apparent. Got to handle it. Small little, small little company, or though maybe large company. I don't know. It, it's hard to tell midsize company that has this many employees gets to, um, work on this problem somehow. But yeah, I, I don't think that any of the other eight bosses that Peter has are any more competent than than Lumberg. I, I don't think that uh, he was the one squeaky wheel. Right. It seemed like it was just a company where they they were good at one thing, and that was, you know, the, the profit shares for the stockholders and, and they were creating all these chips. But boy, was it 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 was just a very or work environments, not the kind of place that makes you happy to go to work in the morning or go home at the end of the day. 
Yeah, for several of the characters. And the brunt of it, as we said, is is really felt by Peter, but also by Milton. Poor Milton. So let's briefly oh, yeah. talk about Milton because he, his relationship with Lumberg um, seems to span a little bit longer of a time period. as it, That's what's implied uh, than uh, uh, Lumberg's bullying of, of uh, Peter. Poor, I poor agree, um, you know, because I, I think that Milton has probably been there for a long, long time. And uh, he has a very adversarial relationship, it seems, with Lumberg. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's a term in IO Psych. It, it's called the thermodynamics of revenge. And I can't help <laughs> but think of poor Milton every single time. I say it in class, and unless I, you know, give a lot of context, my students aren't going to know the reference. So I rarely bring it up, just as I tell them what the term is. But basically, slight after slight, slap in the face after slap in the face, there are all these different kinds of things. And you know, a person might withdraw, like Peter does. He just stops going to work. Yep. He just stops answering emails, and you know, maybe it's going to be that. Uh, Milton does a little bit of venting. He tries to. Nobody really listens to him <laughs> with his attempts to vent. He he's just uh, he tells multiple people what his intentions are if they move his desk one more time or take his swing line stapler. But of course, but, they're they're not listening to him, right? No. It, granted, he does mumble. I'm going to burn the place. I'm going to burn the building down. <laughs> so but I mean, no, I, I mean, granted, they had no idea. So it it eventually results in this explosion. And sometimes that explosion is like a fiery I quit, kind of like Jennifer Aniston's character mm-hmm. Joanna does when she says, you want me to express myself? Here are two fingers I can express myself with. I don't need 15 pieces of flair. And so that is also thermodynamics of revenge, but with a less literally uh, fiery end as, <laughs> as compared to Milton's. I, I like this how I'm gl- so glad that it that this term thermodynamics of revenge like what a term that a psychologist came up with. Am I right? I think the term is older than the movie so I don't think we can say that Milton inspired no, the I, term. No, I know but I'm glad it I'm glad it. I'm uh, glad too. It it it, uh, it strikes you as M- Milton being the perfect example of such a thing. Both literally and in the spirit, figuratively. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. Well, there's one more IO topic that I think is useful to discuss with this movie. And again, one of those conversations that has stood the test of time, for better or for worse. I'm going to go for worse on this one. Um, Work-life balance. So in the movie... Peter goes and sees a occupational hypnotherapist, whatever the hell that is, um, <laughs> and uh, agrees to go under hypnosis to uh, with uh, his girlfriend, who is definitely cheating on him. And many people know that, including his uh, neighbor, Lawrence, who we haven't spoken about at all. But I love Diedrich Bader uh, in that. He's role. an amazing character. Yeah. Lawrence. Anyways, everybody knows that she's uh, cheating on him, but he goes to this hypnotherapist and agrees to be hypnotized to, I don't know, make his life better somehow. And um, in the middle of his hypnotism, uh, the hypnotist, I'm laughing, it's not funny, but it is kind of funny how it's presented in the film. Heart attacks are not funny, but when they're played in a certain way, it's hilarious. 
I, I sorry, I can't, I can't it's, not. It's, it don't, don't feel bad about it. Mel Brooks is one of my favorite movie comedians of all time. And he said, tragedy is when I get a paper cut. But comedy is when you fall into a manhole and die. <laughs> yeah. It's just that it's is one hundred percent. And and I think he would think it's okay to laugh at this heart attack. Yeah. So the the therapist uh, gets a heart attack, and um, it's in the middle of the hypnosis treatment, and so Peter is just feeling good about himself, and just stops going to work. But this isn't really work-life balance, though, right? Oh, definitely not. Um, I, I would say, uh, well, <laughs> he's been missing a lot of work, but he hasn't exactly been missing it, Alex. Exactly. He, <laughs> no, he... Ooh, um, such a good line. Oh, no, it's, it's fantastic because, well, the pendulum, it seemed like work had totally consumed his life. Right. So then it, he just let it swings all the way the other way. He's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave no space for work in my life at all. He's going fishing with Lawrence and his girlfriend. They're having a wonderful time. They're watching a lot of Kung Fu. They love Kung Fu. <laughs> it's such and a random so, thing. <laughs> well, the movie would have been a lot different if Jennifer Aniston didn't really care for Kung Fu movies. But uh, no, it's, it's wild. The point where he really finally does achieve what I would describe as a healthy work-life balance it's when he's con- working construction with Lawrence yeah, at the end. Right. You know, he, he's able to, and there's a lot to be said for going to work and having a job where you can work at work and leave your work at work. Right. But um, there are scales out there. I wish I could remember the, the researchers or the scales names right now, but there's plenty of people out there. It's a spectrum like anything. There mm-hmm. are people who really prefer very firm boundaries between, between their home life and their work life. Mm-hmm. And there are people who want to have them uh, very intermingled. Mm -hmm. And so like when you're talking about sharing a personal experience, a personal success at work, that says to me that it's like, yeah, your work life can affect your home life in a positive way. Your family life can affect your work work life in a positive way. And sometimes there's negative spillover too. And, you know, we've all just gone through the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. We're trying to figure out, well... What about working at home? How does that work for you? It doesn't work for everybody. Some people really love it. Some people are not going to love it as much. But the research shows that most people aren't like hardliners one way or the other. The research doesn't show most people want to be at the office five days a week or at home office five days a week. Yeah, They'd like to have the flexibility. And that's left to the companies to figure out how they're going to pay for a part-time office building when you have full-time rent. But you've got all of these different kinds of things uh, and at play. And yeah, when when Peter quits his job and when the other guys, you know, like the guy who's selling magazines, he's (laughs) so good. He's much happier uh, selling magazines than he was doing the software engineering stuff. And so I think that is a a nice illustration. Gosh, I I would love to see an office space too covid edition or something like that (laughs) it would be it would be amazing because we're in the middle of this thing that we don't even really have a super great name for yet we're calling it the great resignation but it's not like people are just quitting they're quitting to leave toxic work environments Mm -hmm. they're quitting because they have bosses that don't respect or support them they're 
trying to find things that are a better fit for their life and where they're at. And so I really do think that when you've got all of these different factors, it's never just one thing. It always depends. But when you've got a guy like Peter at the end, it's it's nice, but it's also real unrealistic, right? Because you have a person that if I ask you to think of a friend of yours who is kind of always unhappy in their situation, and they say, oh, if this one thing would happen for me, if this one thing would yeah. change for me, I would, I would be a happier, more satisfied person. Yeah. And that's just not what the job satisfaction relationship research shows at all. Okay. It, you know, that. Yes, objectively, you have circumstances that are going to affect your job satisfaction. Mm-hmm. But it's also a personal affect thing, much like the, the happiness research, right? You've got this set point, something great happens to you, you get a promotion, or if something bad happens to you, you get fired. Happy people are going to still be happy people if you check with them in a year. Yeah. And people okay. who are satisfied with their jobs, Interesting. same kind of thing. So if a person says, oh, I got to really change jobs, I got to mm-hmm. change jobs, then I'm going to be happy. If I get this promotion, that's what's going to make me happy. Um, you check in with that person a few months later, and it's like the honeymoon hangover effect, right? At yeah. first, they're like, this was exactly the change I needed. It's perfect. And then you check in with them a little bit later, and they got new problems. And it's just, it's it's unfortunate now, you can find a job that is more in line with like a better work-life balance, for example. So I think that if we were talking about how Peter said the biggest problem for him was working hard wasn't going to lead to a better outcome. Right. Well, if, if he's working harder on the construction site, it might lead to a better outcome. He might get uh, raised. Uh, he might get a promotion to a foreman. He might get other more lucrative opportunities. Yeah. But um, if you're in a job with no growth opportunities, I think that that is one caveat that it's like if you feel like, especially in your 20s, it's like he was having a midlife crisis in his early 20s. Yeah. And so that's that's a, a sad place to be. But um, yeah, it's interesting. Like he he achieves this work life balance at the end. But I also wonder, like, boy, I, I hope that he's still satisfied with that, that job a year later, because Lawrence is satisfied. Lawrence has a pretty uh, great life in Lawrence's eyes, right? Sure. He, he doesn't. He he doesn't have lofty goals, but he also is content. And there's a lot to say for contentedness. You know, there's uh, many people have a high need for achievement. He doesn't seem to have a high need for achievement, but he's certainly enjoying himself. And he really enjoys that uh, um, channel with the. Um... Channel nine, dude. <laughs> yes. With the uh, <laughs> breast examinations, which was yes. on channel nine for some reason in 1999. I <laughs> could not I could not tell you. All right. Well, those are some good on that note. <laughs> <laughs> on that note exactly. On that note. Um, yeah, I, I want to end uh, the show with you, Ed, by talking about some of the um great sort of just random things that we like about this movie so uh, i would like you to go ahead and go first yeah there's a lot of great nuggets in here of course right i mean i i think about like poor michael bolton i think about how like the cocktail party effect is forever ruined for him most people we like to hear our name in context or out of context right if someone's talking about us it always cheers us up a little bit but for him all self-relevant 
Hud C is is, uh, is kind of gone. I, I I've always felt bad for him in that respect. The scene with the fax machine, I mean, that's a workplace stressor that they, again, there's probably some thermodynamics of revenge involved in that scene as well. Sounds like you can have some thermodynamics of revenge for inanimate objects. Whew, say that 10 times fast. My I'll choose not to. I'll choose not okay, to. Okay, that's a good choice. But, that's a good choice. But no, um, yeah. Milton at the end, I know that you, you've got a strong emotional connection with Milton. Yeah. So I'll let you talk about Milton. Well, I think Milton did a uh, fantastic job carrying out his throne. I'm at third. Oh, my goodness. I cannot say it. Why is this so hard? <laughs> third. You got me to say that one? <laughs> his, uh, his, um, you know, physics, physics revenge. There we go. <laughs> the revenge physics. Uh, he does a great job. I think he I mean, he's the most consistent character throughout the whole movie. Um, and as you said earlier, he says exactly what he is going to do. Um, and I love the end scene where just, you know, again, consistency makes it so good for Milton. Um, I asked for a metai, but they give me a uh, pina colada and I didn't want that. And then um, I didn't want. Uh, salt on my margarita and um and the uh, the <laughs> he's in mexico and the waiter is like uh no salt okay no salt he's already not listening yeah, already to not listening he's already planning his thermodynamic revenge on the resort for putting the salt on the rim of his glass this poor guy, it's a good example. You would think with $300,000 in the bank right. and on the beach, he's going to be satisfied with his life. Poor Milton's going to find things to complain about. Always. So maybe it wasn't always uh, because he was getting pushed around and his desk was... Or people were were spot. taking his stapler because it's the best one. It doesn't get gemmed. Although I guess I don't want to uh, jump to any conclusions. Yes, I want to end that. with this nugget as a cognitive psychologist that studies biases and talks about them um in an endless format the jump to conclusions matt is perhaps my favorite thing richard riley sells this as tom he sells this so good and he thinks it's a wonderful idea but his comparison is to the guy who invented the pet rock <laughs> that's not the person you should be aspiring to be but he made a lot of money Alex. he did he made a million dollars in 1999 that still wasn't a lot of money but okay uh, and so he comes up with this idea of jump to conclusions, Matt. It's you know, there are people in this world that don't have to put up with all this shit. Like that guy that invented the pet rock. You see, that's what you have to do. You have to use your mind and come up with some really great idea like that. And you can make millions, never have to work again. You think the pet rock was a really great idea? Sure it was. The guy made a million dollars. You know... I had an idea like that once, a long time ago. Really? What was it, Tom? Well, all right. It was a jump to conclusions, Matt. You see, it would be this mat that you would put on the floor and would have different conclusions written on it that you could jump to. That is the worst idea I've ever heard in my life, Tom. 
Yes. Yes, it's horrible, this idea. And that's all oh. he explains. That's all he explains about the mat. And to his credit, um, is really invested in it, but <laughs> his workmates think it's the dumbest idea ever. Well, also to his credit, when he creates his prototype, it is also literally as he describes it. Mm. That is very He's, true. He stays true. He stays true to his vision. He does. He doesn't. There's no. He doesn't uh, count out of any pressure from his former workmates on this. He says, "No, this is my dream. This is my pet rock." Oh my goodness! You know, it, it's not to like bring it back to IOE things, but you know that there are some business managers out there that when they hear that, they're like, why is everybody laughing? That's a great idea. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> and that's just so such a microcosm of how things can kind of catch fire in the intersection of IO psych and the workplace, right? It's like an IO psychologist can be talking about things for two hours. A manager picks up on the one throwaway comment, and now that's the new TED Talk. Right. And so that we were joking that the jump to conclusions, Matt, definitely could and maybe should be a TED talk. But (laughs) (laughs) but no, I, I, you know, we talk about how millions of dollars every year is spent on things like the Myers-Briggs. And it just it's nice for self-exploration, but it should never, ever be used in a hiring context. And some people just still swear by it. You know, it's just like, oh, I'm sorry that you feel that way. It really works for our company. Yeah. And, and, and fingers and ears when it comes to that kind of stuff, because it's so flashy. Um, but on a, on, on a final note, uh, since you mentioned the MBTI, uh, according to somebody who just cited my paper on, um, the poor theory behind the MBTI, I created it. So you, yeah, I created it. Mm Mm-hmm. Me and my co-author, oh, yeah, my. we we created the MBTI. Um, so I apologize, IO psychologists. Well, that gives me a lot of conflicted feelings. I was feeling very good about our conversation. I know up until just now. It's so rough too because I write a paper on how it's crap. So I must hate my own work. <laughs> well, there's a lot of self hate in this movie too, so it's consistent. Excellent. All righty. I want to thank Ed for joining me, Dr. Ed Hansen, to discuss Office Space. Before we say our goodbyes, Ed, is there anything you'd like to plug or where people can find uh, out more about your work? Um, honestly, no. Uh, nothing to plug. Uh, thanks very much for having me. This, this, this was a really, really fun time. I've been a fan of your show and your teaching insights for a while now, and it's a pleasure to get that. to actually chat with you, but also chat with this movie. Uh, a chat about this movie with you. Um, but if people want to find me, uh, you know, I've always been a social psychologist that embraces being very social and you can connect with me hey. on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you want, I'm happy to chat about movies or teaching or anything else via the Facebook STP group, or you can find me on Twitter at Ed Hansen underscore PH dad. And I will link that for the folks for the show notes so you can find them. But yeah, that's uh, at Ed Hansen. Don't forget the underscore PH dad. So because it's play on PhD, I get it. Oh, I've loved dad jokes since I was a teenager, Alex. Yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. Mainly because my mom would never stop telling them. 
<laughs> so um i will link that and thanks again and i appreciate you being on and and um giving me that feedback definitely oh definitely. yeah um if we could just go ahead and do this again sometime that would be great that's gonna do it for this episode until the next one thanks for listening Thank you.